Hello and welcome to the View from the Byline podcast, our first episode. I'm Pete Trofunovic. I'm joined by Alex Brinton and Matt Lee. And alongside us today uh, is a former editor or digital development editor of uh, the Birmingham Mail and now a uh, course leader at Nottingham Trent University, uh, Johnny Cretrix. Nice to see you, Johnny. Hello, nice to see you too. You are uh, finding uh, lockdown via virtual uh, teaching all right uh yes thank you within reason uh everything we all say has to be caveated by like yeah everyone in my family is well and nothing bad to us has really happened uh and then of course everyone goes on a massive whinge about how tedious it is uh so so there you go so yeah it's it is what it is um combining like many people work uh, home life and childcare into the same building um, is not something I'd advise anyone to do. Uh, but as, as I said at the start, we're all healthy and well. We've got food, and so yes, thank you. How are you? How are you finding it, Pete? I'm not too bad, thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, probably going to get some square eyes by the end of looking at too many screens. <laughs> <laughs> the way the way the world works at the moment. Uh, so, like I say, I'm joined by Alex and Matt. So um, we'll obviously try. We're going to try and grill you a bit about sort of. Finding the story behind the stories, we like to say, uh, in our trailer last week. Um, find a bit more about uh, what your opinion is of sort of working in the industry mm-hmm. and uh, some of your experiences at that time too. So we sort of decided on some uh, quickfire questions just to, before we get into the nitty gritty of sort of your uh, experience and career. So mm-hmm. first off, it's a bit of a t- tough one, this one, but uh, if you could ever pick a historical event to cover, what might it be? Uh, well, you did. You kindly sent me these questions in advance, so you know, let's pretend that I'm just being off off the head of uh, avant garde here. Um, I think the French Revolution, the French Revolution, uh, which I don't know if that's like the the hipster's choice or what, but. Um, I've been listening to a podcast series about it, and I'm reading a Hilary Mantel novel called A Place of Greatest Safety, uh, which is epic, and I'm currently immersed in that world. So, yeah, if I could sit on the sidelines, I mean, it lasted for about sort of anywhere between five and 30 years. So um, <laughs> if I could sit on the sidelines and watch that unfold, that would be it. Or, because um, obviously historical events can, I, I thought about things in the future. I'd really like to cover the moment the UK returns to the European Union. Uh, <laughs> that, they're under, a, under a landslide Keir Starmer government. That's what I want to cover. Put down my journalism teaching for a bit. Descend back into the end, come out of retirement and, and cover those <laughs> glorious historic events. Yeah, I think that might go down well with some people in this chat, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And not others, I, I, yeah, I not others. think. But there you go. We're always happy to yeah, I mean, to be fair, in the French Revolution, I think uh, Matt's favourite thing uh, of getting a live blog going, that might work quite well as well. <laughs> <laughs> it might run longer than some of the coronavirus live blogs. Yeah, yeah that's um, very true. Maybe. Pete, you've just nailed a brilliant collaborative project between us and the history department. So we're going to team up with them uh, to cover the French Revolution via live blogs. Uh, oh, it's going to be epic. I love it already. Okay, so um, another question. When did you first realise you wanted to be a journalist? About a month before I left university. Really? Well, sort of. I kind of always loved journalism and loved current affairs, a uh, very newsy family, very political family. Um, 
but uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to be at all. I was a teacher kind of background from in my family. Um, and uh, after a three-year history and politics degree, my mum went, what are you going to do next? And I was like, what do you mean next? I've just finished a thing. I've just finished. I've not started. <laughs> <laughs> you got this all wrong, mother. What do you mean next? Um, and uh, I just thought, well, I, I really like journalism. I went to a talk by a, a local journalism college that came into university. Um, and it sounded like great fun, but I didn't actually know you could be a journalist. I didn't know you could do courses and become one. And um, when I found out you could, I was like, oh, fine, that's for me. And well, I guess this sort of ties in quite well, but sort of a piece of advice you could give to your younger self then? Stop drinking immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Stop. I, know, I think I might fall on deaf ears in a, in a chat with uh, three other students. <laughs> I know, I know, I've not drank this year. <laughs> yet i've been I've, I've stopped drinking um not through any great like epiphany or and it hasn't been that hard i just got i just felt really really horrible after even a couple of beers um but it's just a different world i mean it's amazing um the amount of time i wasted hungover and tired and groggy and extra anxious because i was because i've been drinking too much but i agree i my former self is going to ignore that advice completely <laughs> I think I think it probably might be a good skill to be able to learn how to be a, a journalist whilst hungover as well. Uh, well, it's, uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, m- many of our students do try to learn that skill <laughs> while on the course. <laughs> now, as you said, Johnny, you've done it, you've had a bit of preparation for this, but. Uh, same here, I say. I'd say. Um, did find a nice little hold the front page uh, article on your um, your your sort of uh, move from uh, the industry into um, teaching. In fact, I think it was between two of your teaching uh, roles. But um, it did sort of uh, say that you, you left um, university with a master's in news journalism in two thousand and seven. Correct me. Yes. yes. Well, then they know their stuff. Hold the front page. What What were your sort of thoughts on where to go next? What, in 2007? Yeah. Um, well, I went to the first place that gave me a job. Because <laughs> um, that's kind of in the journalism sector. When you come out of a course, I did a master's course um, to get my NCTJs. That's all you want to do is get a job as a journalist. And you don't really care where. I was fortunate um, that my first job because I got a job was with the Birmingham titles, uh, you know, Birmingham Post, Birmingham Mail, uh, and I started working on the Sunday Mercury. I was also being interviewed at the time uh, for the Redford Times, you know, a small weekly in a, in a kind of market town. Um, I did two interviews for them and then the job got pulled because they lost the money for it. So it could, I could easily have ended up in Redford as a, as a reporter on a weekly for a couple of years. But um, where did I want to go? I wanted to go anywhere when I could be a journalist. That was... That's very fair enough. I think it's uh, possibly the journalist instinct to just being able to find news, perhaps. So, what? Give us sort of an insight of uh, your sort of rise through the ranks then at uh, the Birmingham Post and Mail. Then I should caveat some this key moments. Uh, of, uh, you know, I'm I'm terrified that uh, former colleagues, current <laughs> colleagues, people are going to listen to this and be like, "Who does he think he writes? <laughs> What's he been telling them?" Um, 
So I should caveat that I have told these three wonderful journalism students they should be, uh, after this episode, be aiming a lot higher than me uh, <laughs> for their interviews and insights into the industry. But um, a potted history of my time there. I joined in 2008. Um, I worked as a, as a training reporter. I was mainly on the Sunday Mercury newspaper, which is still going, I believe. Uh, it was a Sunday tabloid covering the Midlands, East and West Midlands, are a really big patch. It was a weekly, so there wasn't as much at that time of the covering, like breaking news as it happened, apart from on Saturdays. Um, but I did that for quite a few years. I was a trainee, and then it takes you about two years to get your seniors. Uh, I did that, and then I was about four or five years in. Um, there was a move to digital, and... Um, a job came up on the digital desk and I applied for it. I've been doing a lot of video journalism at various times for the Sunday Mercury and for the Birmingham Mail. Um, and I got that job. So that was like a digital job in that team. And then did that for a year or two. And then there was another reorganization, I think, and a kind of slightly more senior uh, digital development editor job came up. Yep. Um, so I took that, I got, got that as part of that. Uh, I did that for about a year or so, I think. And then... Um, if that's what you want to call a rise through the ranks, <laughs> uh, you know, there it was. But it, it was that was a really good job. That I really enjoyed that that, that final job, um, trying to help the newsroom transition from a place which was a newspaper with a website attached and mm. turn it into a or help the progress or the transition of turning it into a newsroom which felt itself to be a website which also did a newspaper. Well, I guess that might be the case for quite a lot of regional papers at that time transition from print into a more combined multimedia sort of platform I think it was a uh, it's definitely something that every sort of newspaper had to go through in order to keep up with the uh, changing times what would you sort of um would you point to any uh, big moments throughout those times that sort of or was it just constant sort of graft <laughs> Constant graft, please. Never, no, there were no high points. It was all terrible. Um, yeah, I mean, this is why I try to, uh, you know, encourage people, students like you guys and all your course mates, you know, to, to go and be journalists, go and be news reporters. It's just such a fun job. It's, it's scary. And there were times when I was really anxious about certain things I had to go and do, certain door knocks, certain you know, fronting people up, just certain jobs that for some reason... Um, you get you give you the collie wobbles and you think oh, oh but those those moments are more than made up for by the by the high points um well you know, what, what would you like to hear about peter and alex and, and matt you tell me what you want to know well i'll open, it, I'll open the floor to alex well, and what's, matt. what's sort of like you, you if you'd pick one story and you'd say that's probably one of the best things i've done one of the things you put the most work into and you felt was most rewarding what would you what would you say um, we had a splash and a story uh, where we worked with uh, a sexual abuse survivor um, who was abused as a boy by a priest, a uh, Catholic priest called uh, Father James Robinson. Um, you, you carry around with you all these names in your heads. You never forget them um, from various stories. Um, and uh, we worked with one of his victims, a guy called Jeff. And uh, Jeff 
uh, helped us and we helped him track down a letter uh, which proved that the church in Birmingham had known about the allegations against this priest when they helped him flee to America. Um, and he lived in America for about 25 years after that point, escaping justice. And it was journalists much grander and bigger than me that went actually tracked this guy down in America, which I think during the sort of 90s. Um, he eventually was brought back. He's now in prison. I don't know if he's died or not yet. Um, I don't, at one point, I don't think he'd been defrocked. I don't think he'd been actually technically was still a priest, um, even, you know, in the 2010s. So in terms of stories with relevance and that you feel actually make a difference, and I suppose that was kind of the, the biggest one. You know, this, this is a letter which sensationally proves the Catholic Church knew about allegations of a paedophile priest 25 years before he was brought to justice. Did you get much, did the church sort of push back at you with that? And did you have to sort of deal with that at all? Or did, were they sort of quite accepting of what it transpired they'd done? Um, they just give you a, you know, I, I mean, you know what, I, I googled it um, just to see if it was still up there. Uh, no, they just give you a state, just give you a comment, you know. Um, uh, there's like an apocryphal quote or phrase from from, I don't know if who made it up or where it came from. But something about journalists trying to get hold of, um, you know, the Vatican press office uh, and someone at the press office at the Vatican said, well, you might deal in years and decades, but we deal in, we deal in centuries. So we never we never rush anything. Um, and I thought they, they, they deal in millennia, don't they? Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, no, there wasn't there wasn't that much uh, comeback. Uh, I'm not even sure if we've got uh, last night. Last night, spokesman Peter Jennings, also now dead. Uh, said the Archdiocese of Birmingham has cooperated fully with the police in their investigation into the allegations made against James Robinson. Those involved in the management of this matter in 1985 are no longer alive. Robinson was convicted in 2011 and it's not appropriate for the Archdiocese to make any further comments at this time as there are civil cases pending. The Catholic Church now has robust and effective policies and procedures in place to ensure that all allegations of abuse are reported to the police immediately. So, there you go, Alex, you know, um, yeah, what, okay. what you will of that. <laughs> you mentioned the, the low points, including those door knocks. What's your view on them currently and in modern times? Do you think that they're still an important part of journalism, going to visit people who's maybe had a family member who's been involved in a serious crime and died? Do you think it's unethical or do you still think it's an important part of journalism? I think it. I think it's a crucial part of journalism and there's door knocks and door knocks and there's there's... There's clear guidance in place from the Ipso Code um, about what's ethically appropriate, uh, intruding into grief and shock. Um, sometimes you need to front someone up and confront them and say, you know, the, you've done these things or people are saying you've done these things and, and you need to give them their chance to reply. Um, so I, I've got no kind of problem with, with door knocks as, as such. Um, obviously, if, if a a, a journalist or a title is repeatedly going back to someone's front door hour after hour, day after day, sitting in a car outside, then uh, that's a different matter. That's a matter, a matter for them and a matter for their news desk. That's very, yeah, that's very true. Um, <clears throat> there was some sort of highs like you just sort of spoke about. What were there some sort of lessons or not lows exactly, but mistakes that you learned from during the time in the industry? Drink one or two. Drink less. <laughs> <laughs> um, mistakes that I learned from. Um, there was one time where I absolutely bottled covering a double murder, and I've always been ashamed of myself 
Um, it was a Saturday shift uh, in in Birmingham, and there'd been a double murder in Wolverhampton. But I'd been told that day I was going to go and cover the St George's Day Parade uh, in Birmingham City Centre. And I thought, oh, brilliant. Um, that'll be a nice, steady Saturday. You know, I won't have to go yomping around the black country trying to find anyone or whatever. It'll just be a night. Oh, oh hello, I'm from the Sunday Mercury newspaper. What do you think of a parade? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Where are you from? Redditch. You need your kids. Oh, what's your name? And how old are you? You go back and write it up. What a, what a dream. And then just as I was about to leave, double murder dropped. Wolverhampton and the boss came oh Johnny can you go to Wolverhampton and I just <laughs> I'm eternally ashamed of this and probably why I'm mentioning it as some sort of like cathartic thing to get it off my chest in a, in a semi-public forum um, and I, went, I just sort of went, but, 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 but I'm covering the parade Tony <laughs> um, I, I'm covering the parade um, and he sort of looked at me and said oh alright then mate but in that way, as if, you know, when, when you're in a relationship with someone and, and you've had a fallout and the other person goes, OK, that's fine then. You know, like, it's not fine, is it? Yeah. <laughs> Tony just wanted someone who actually wanted to go and cover double murder to go and cover it. And to be fair, there weren't, there weren't many times when I shirked the, the slightly more challenging jobs or whatever. Uh, but that, that was one. But I think I learned from that to, uh, you know, to... To always be as brave as you can, really, and, and, and not <laughs> be a complete coward. Um, other things I learned I should have learned more shouldn't I I'm supposed to be teaching you guys to learn things. <laughs> um, I think I well one of the things that I learned um, through the course of, of kind of a, uh, being a reporter and, and working in the newsroom is how terrified I was of public speaking um, uh, in in meetings and things, I've been in meetings with five colleagues, uh, and my heart will be pounding out of my chest, um, uh, and I'd be scared of speaking up. So um, that's something I worked really hard to overcome because uh, I thought I can't go through life uh, being scared of talking in even in meetings. Yeah, I think it's uh, it is something that you've got to sort of take on the chin, haven't you? Especially sort of in journalism, it's it's not a uh... It's not um, always seen as being a scary job, but I think there's definitely points at it that you can uh, come under a bit of pressure to do things you don't always want to do, but you've got to... Yeah, I mean, I mean, my first ever splash, um, it was, in, like in hindsight, um, it was a great story. It was like a really good story. It's absolutely meaningless um, <laughs> in the scheme of things. Um, but like it was a, it was a doctor who he'd found out about he'd been in front or he was going to be in front of the uh, General Medical Council um, for drink driving. Well, as in he'd been done for drink driving. He was a doctor. He got a conviction. If you get a criminal conviction for drink driving as a doctor, then the GMC says, well, we need to have a hearing to see if you can still be a doctor. Um, so you get his address from, from the virtual role or whatever. And I drove all the way up to Loughborough to knock on this door. And a, a woman who was his wife opened the door and, you know, standard sort of thing. I just said, oh, here, I'm here from the Sunday Mercury newspaper. Uh, I'm trying to contact Alan, Alan Elias Jones to talk about um, his drink driving conviction and his, his fitness to, to practice hearing. Um, and she said, oh, he's not in, but come in. I'll tell you the whole story. <laughs> and I thought, oh, <laughs> well, that's helpful, isn't it? <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> what a nice lady. So I went into this rather big house somewhere outside Loughborough and I sat at the kitchen table. 
and she proceeded to to tell me how uh, this man, uh, her husband, had fathered a secret second family with another woman um, for like years, you know, years. The, the, the second family's children were like teenagers. Um, I know. Um, I mean, probably should. I mean, it's all. It's all. We're okay for defamation because we published it back in two thousand and eight. So I think I think you're okay in terms of using all this detail. But it might be worth thinking about. Um, so I left the house and I, I drove back to the office and I said, "Brilliant, John! I got a brilliant story. Uh, this is this is oh, isn't journalism great? Aren't I a great journalist? You know." And, and then it was a sharp lesson at that point because my boss, Tony, was a wonderful uh, boss and a wonderful person to learn journalism from, Tony Lana. Um, and he said, well, can you prove any of it? I was like, no, but but his wife told me at the kitchen table. <laughs> He's like, well, so what? <laughs> yeah. She could tell you anything. Yeah, I know, but that, she's not going to lie, is she? And like, well, that won't do with Johnny. We need some proof. And I'm like, right, okay, so... Um, he said, go back up there and find out where he lives now with the other woman um, and knock on his door. Um, and what you want to do, Johnny, is uh, with Tony's words, like poking a stick with a bear, right? You want to make him so angry um, that he says something which indicates that it's definitely all true and confirms it. <laughs> so I had to go driving up to Loughborough in my little Skoda Fabia. Uh, and I was absolutely terrified. I got a minute. I wanted to. I wanted to change the world and, and right wrongs. Why am I going to knock on this bloke's door and ask him about his relationships and things? Um, and in the end, I knocked on the door, uh, really scared, and like a ten-year-old girl answered it, <laughs> uh, which was one of one of his other children, I think. And I just said, "Is your daddy in?" And she went, "No." Um, and I said, oh, all right, then. <laughs> Thanks very much, Tara. Oh, I rang news desk. Um, uh, and then I had Damien uh, Boss shout out over the over the phone. We've lost the splash. Johnny's been outfoxed by a 10-year-old girl. Um, <laughs> and, and so, yeah, what did I learn? I, you know, I, I learned uh, <laughs> uh, there were some things that you don't want to do, but you kind of have to do, because otherwise you haven't got a story. Yeah. Yeah, have you ever done anything that sort of, um, you've looked back on with a sort of a bit of regret, sort of ethically. You thought maybe I shouldn't have done that, or maybe I should have acted different in that certain situation. Um, yeah, a couple. Of, I suppose so. Yeah, if, if you want one, <laughs> uh, you might not want to hear this, but I'll tell you it anyway. Um, just for the images it will conjure up in your in your mind's eye. I mean, th- that one, for example, that love rat story. Um, this was around the time of the Max Mosley case. I don't know if you're familiar with the Max Mosley uh, Nazi sex... Oh, not a Nazi sex orgy, just your standard sex orgy. Um, for, for, for anyone that's not... that's not, uh, Is there another sort of orgy? Orgy of... I always get a violent orgy, can't you? Anyway, anyway. Um, yeah, this is around the time of the Max Mosley case where you had to have a really good reason for prying into someone's private life. And on that Love Rat story... We just about justified it because this doctor was uh, the head of like, child protection services at the NHS. But really, it's his life and it's up to him what he does. But another example of those, uh, Alex, um, somehow he became aware that a man was <coughs> advertising in Wolverhampton um, for young men who wanted to be dressed up as schoolboys 
and appear in um, saucy videos. For the listener, Matt's now typing a message to Alex, and it probably says something like, time to speed up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can see all three of them on the screen, you see, on the, on the, uh, on the team call. <laughs> Told you to go on a bit. Um, yeah, so you know, so your alarm bells are ringing a little bit when you've got someone advertising for like men, young men to dress as boys. Hang on a minute, is someone advertising for under? Is it solar cover? Da yeah. da da. Um, so of course the boss said, well, only way you can do that story, Johnny, is to is to pose as one of these men who wants to dress up as a schoolboy and get spanked in videos by this man. Um, so I I sent an email, met this met this man. In uh, in the Lime Tree Cafe on Wolverhampton train station platform, uh, it always gives me a chuckle if I ever end up going <laughs> to Hampton on the train, <laughs> and it stops at Wolverhampton. I look out, and that's what I read. That man who thought I wanted to be dressed as a schoolboy and get spanked in a video, um, <laughs> and I, I met him. I had a chat with him. Uh, you know, he was just a bloke in his sixties. He said he made these videos in his basement. He flogs them on the internet. Um, Nothing he did was particularly untoward, um, but we got a photo of him when he was leaving the train station. We did a story saying, you know, perverts, perverts, sordid secret. I think there was a school on the street or something. Oh, right, yeah. So it was like, you know, perverts, saucy secret on the school, on the street, just just 50 years from a school. But looking back, you know, it answers the question, we've got no business putting his photograph on the internet and in newspapers for this thing that he did. You know, it's not everyone's taste, but it's, it's utterly, utterly his private life. And I think if he'd brought a privacy action, which obviously he never did, I think, it, and if he does now, I'm on the back of this. I doubt he'll hear it, but anyway. Um, <laughs> no, oops, sorry, sorry for my colleagues. Um, I think he'd have won it in a heartbeat. You know, if he'd, if he'd have been Max Morsley and had millions of pounds to employ a high, high-paid QC, yeah. So there you go. <laughs> That one. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> got more than you for that, didn't you? Like <laughs> <laughs> Certainly got the so, train episode sorted. Yeah. Um, <laughs> finally, on your sort of career in the industry, this is a bit more uh, left field, I guess. But as sort of the view from the byline, your critics are, of course, your readers. What and obviously, they can be they can be quite um, uh, harsh sometimes. What would you sort of and about the content they produce, what would you sort of try and point out to them that they can't always see about the workings of sort of a regional newspaper or whichever publication you're with? Um, that the very essence of the life you take for granted is underpinned by the work of the journalist which you're slating. Mm. Have that pithy and to the point, eh? <laughs> <laughs> now, there's always a lot to unpack in that. But, uh, you know, I'm a, I studied history and, and politics and I'm familiar with kind of, you know, the, the, the way our rights have evolved. And they're not our rights, by the way. They don't exist, human rights. We've made them up. Nothing exists. Math doesn't exist. You know, math, humans made up maths. It's weird that maths has its own rules, even though we invented it to help us interpret the world and the universe. Crackers, isn't it? Human rights don't exist. They've been hard fought and hard won. Um, and we've just seen with the coronavirus how precarious, really, uh, everything we took for granted can be. So, yes, there are elements of the press which maybe don't always do the greatest things um, in some people's eyes. But yeah, if you're if you're attacking journalists, you're attacking you're, you're hacking at the branch on which you sit. I think it's quite a 
relevant, especially in, during this last weekend with the Sunday Times uh, article covering Boris Johnson and then many people uh, go, taking to social media, screenshotting what was a paywalled article. I think that's uh, sort of, yes, it is very essential to sort of see this information, but it's been done through journalism that has been paid for and it's it's essential that these people are paid to provide this sort of content. Yes, I agree. And the the, the challenge of how to pay for journalism, given that we've just probably agreed that journalism is quite important in holding people to account. Just remember that like, humans are fallible. We're all fallible. You know, uh, one thing I like to do with students in a session about kind of checks and balances and, and holding power to account is I get students to think about little scenarios um, uh, where if you didn't get caught, would you still do it sort of thing? Yeah. So if you guys are in your student flat and you you knocked over your flatmate's favourite mug that they told you was their favourite mug that they bought when they were six years old and they've had it all their lives and broke it, but there was no one in the kitchen, no one to see it, what would you do? Would you run immediately and tell the flatmate it was you that broke it? Or would you just think, well, if I just walk out of here, <laughs> go back to my room, nobody will see it. If you thought there might be a journalist who might find out that you did that in a document or might ask questions about it or there might be someone who could hold you to account uh, would that change your actions and that's on a tiny tiny scale that's exactly what journalism does for the people who wield almighty power over us mm. yeah so moving on sort of uh, from your jump from the industry into educating the next generation so to speak why was what was the decision based on instead of possibly uh, trying to progress in the industry instead of what you are now, both going to Canterbury Christchurch uh, to be, or now it's a testimony of what I wrote down, um, be a multimedia course leader. Well right. done, be a multimedia right journalism. And then uh, Masters News Journalism at Nottingham Trent University currently. Um, why didn't you fancy sticking around in the industry? Uh, it's a really good question. And it's exactly the question journalism students being taught by me or any journalism tutor who's not you know, still sort of practicing heavily in the industry should ask. Because hang on a minute, you're telling us this is a brilliant job and it's the best thing in the world. Uh, you're not doing it anymore. Why, why aren't you, you back in there? Um, I mean, like anything, there's a lot, a lot of factors behind it. So I will try to keep it mercifully short for you. Um, I'd reached like a point in the Birmingham newsroom where to progress much higher would have taken probably quite a few years, I think, maybe. Uh, and rightly or wrongly, I perceived um, that there wasn't that many more places to rise to in kind of in Birmingham. Um, I'd worked at the same place at that point for uh, seven, eight years. And I also felt like if I'm here for much longer, I'll probably find it really, really, really hard to leave. And something just innate in me was like, but I, I don't want to be here for 10, 15, 20 years. Now, again, uh, I'm not criticizing anyone who does stay in a place for that long. Uh, just for me, I felt like that wasn't what, we needed to do, what I wanted to do. So I was kind of left with uh, trying to move to London for a job in London and even in well, not even in you know five six years ago it's, as it is now it's just utterly bonkers to try to move to London it's so prohibitively expensive uh, and I didn't really want to do that my wife's family were all from from Birmingham um, 
and the real one of the main reasons, I suppose, is that my newsroom um, went through in 2015 its fourth restructure and its fourth round of redundancies. And every kind of all my time working there, uh, every kind of 18 months to two years, we'd lose more staff. And I un completely understand why we lost more staff. It's what we started talking about at the beginning, the, the change in the industry. Um, but I just became quite demoralised and I thought, oh, I want to change. And I said to my wife, I don't think I want to work there anymore. And she said, OK, we'll get a new job. Um, said, well, <laughs> oh, all right. Um, but we've just bought a house in Birmingham, so it'll have to be in Birmingham. And there aren't that many jobs that I've seen that I want in Birmingham. Well, we'll move somewhere else then. I was like, all right. Uh, but you've just got a job as a teacher. You've just done a PGC and you've just got a job at a school you love. I can get a job at another school. Oh, all right. <laughs> um, and then I ran out of excuses and I just applied for lots of different jobs, uh, social media managers, jobs in journalism as well, jobs with charities. Um, and then I, I saw a couple of lecturing jobs and I'd always seen my course leader, your version of me, basically, um, when I was doing my course. Uh, well, I'm not your course leader, but, you know, tutors at... Um, NTU, Nottingham Trent. And I thought that looks like a really fun job. That looks like a brilliant job. I'd like to be a journalism tutor one day. Uh, consequently, I applied for a couple of journalism tutor jobs. Um, one in Sheffield, one in Coventry, one in Canterbury. I got, didn't get an interview at Sheffield. I got an interview at Coventry and Canterbury. But by the time I'd got the Coventry interview, um, I'd already been offered the job in Canterbury. So. I took it. Oh, that's such a long answer, isn't it? Jesus. <laughs> oh, so sorry. I mean, if anyone apart from me cares about that, I'd be really surprised. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's not simple. You know, it's not yeah. simple. And I, and, no, I do, no. and I do genuinely miss being a journalist. There's something great about being a journalist. And I still call myself a journalist, you know. Do you regret... Um, sort of never going on to try and work for a national paper. Uh, yes. Yeah. And did you have any? Was, was it what moving to London one of the factors that sort of put you off that? Or yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and like it's just you know how things kind of kind of line up. I, I, something which really annoys me um, is I was covering a, a case at Stafford Crown Court. I think I don't know say five six years into being a reporter um, and I was a really old school kind of freelance court reporter there who you know he'd been around the block and he was uh, you know he probably in his 60s maybe I don't know he's been been there for years and he had a quick chat with me about what I wanted to do I said oh, I think I'll go to London next you know all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and he went oh what do you want to do that for yeah, you don't want to go to London. Nah, house prices are expensive. You have to do shifts. You'll have to dirty, dirty, dirty. <laughs> and um, I, I don't know. I came away from it, and I thought, oh yeah, I don't want to go to London, do I? And like looking back on it, that can't, that can't have been the deciding factor. Surely not a chance conversation with a freelancer, with a miserable old freelance court reporter at a court in Stafford. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's like. Moving 
before you start a family, moving before you've got children. I mean, I should, I should add here, there's nothing stopping me, um, and I'm not going to do this bosses at NTU, but, you know, I'm still only 37. If I was to decide, actually, what I really want to do is be a journalist on a national title, I'm, yeah. I'm, I feel relatively confident that if I put my mind to it um, and worked really hard for, like, 10, 15 years, that, that's pretty achievable. Um, but I just couldn't see the path there. You know, I couldn't see the routes or how to get there or what to do. I didn't know what to do. I still don't really know what to do. What do you do? Do you just, do you just turn up? Do you apply for a job? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, yes, Alex, I do regret that. Moving back to your role within education now, what's one of the most rewarding things that you've seen come from a student that you've taught? Um, you met her, actually. Um, a student who were taught in Canterbury, who um, just just took everything on board straight away and just ran and ran and ran um, with with like just chasing down hard hitting stories in in our patch in Kent, um, and just to see her go from kind of like a first year, not quite sure what she wants to do, to like get the bug, absolutely get the bug for doing um, journalism. Um, it's a bit unfair because obviously it's an example from when I used to work, but I've only been at, it's only been like halfway through my, my second year at NTU. Um, and while I was at Canterbury, the, the students there that we were teaching, um, they won like the National Publication of the Year Award uh, for their website. And, you know, that, that's like kind of taking the things we were teaching them and putting them into practice with our help. Um, so that that's something which I'm really proud of, but I'm proud every time someone gets a job in journalism <laughs> that, that's the point you know that that's mission accomplished <clears throat> i think um it's almost been slightly devil's advocate here johnny but um i've often read quite a few times and i and remember it from a few possibly a year or two ago an article uh speaking to john humphreys uh quite esteemed journalist and he often questioned why uh, sort of aspiring journalists need a media-based degree to work in the industry what would your sort of view on that be, given that you've obviously done a uh, postgraduate course, mm -hmm. gone into the industry, and now you're teaching the next generation? Um, I think he's got a point in some ways. Like you, you don't necessarily need a higher education qualification to get into the industry as such. You can go and get your NCTJs on a 16-week course. Um, it's just about the speed and of progression and the speed of, of of that route. I mean, what I got from from paying for my master's course at NTU was was a set of, of networks and contacts. Uh, I I got put forward for a placement in Birmingham by my then course leader, who was mates with their recruitment manager and training manager, who probably thought actually Jeff will like Johnny. Johnny's got a good chance of getting a job there. I'll send Johnny down there. Um, so. Uh, you get that element of it, and I think it may be fair to say Mr. Humphreys is, you know, of a slightly different generation, and the world has changed slightly. Journalism, uh, perhaps when he was entering the industry, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't even like to guess uh, and cause some kind of horrendous upset or outrage. Um, but yes, that traditionally it wasn't a course or an industry which required a degree, but the research by um, NCTJ. Uh, and, and various other organisations shows it's now overwhelmingly a graduate industry and all, almost a, almost a postgraduate industry uh, where a large proportion of people who are doing it um, get come from a, a, a university background. But I also think you it's about exit velocity. It's about 
when you leave these courses, if you do things like you guys are already doing in your first year, do extra student media stuff, run your own blogs, push yourselves, work really hard, you emerge after three years, like kind of just ready to hit the ground running and fly. Whereas if you stumble from a, a, week, a week placement here, a week placement there, getting a month's free internship, da 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 um, it can just take you so much longer to get up to the point where you need to be. Well, thanks for uh, all those interesting insights, Johnny. I mean, who'd have thought at the start of this we'd be end up talking about uh, sex scandals and um, Wolverhampton train station? But, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, that's very. Uh, that's... It was very interesting. Obviously, uh, myself, Alex, and Matt all uh, really grateful to have you on here. So that's all from episode one of the View from the Byline podcast. Join us next week as we delve into the stories behind the story of another name from the media world.